0: Today's guest rides her bike to work almost every day to help independent mortgage companies stay compliant. You're listening to the Mortgage Leadership Outlook, and I'm your host, Andrew Berman. Today's guest, Tina Minette-Anderson, the Vice President of Compliance over at Mortgage Educators and Compliance, joins us to talk about her career path, how she's helped consumers kind of protect them in their times of need, and also help mortgage professionals stay ahead of compliance. We're going to talk about Build a Broker and lots more. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Mortgage Leadership Outlook. I'm Andrew Berman for National Mortgage Professional Magazine. So excited that you joined us on this beautiful May 12th. Hopefully it's beautiful where you are. It's gorgeous here in New York. It's just like perfect. It's like, you know, like the San Diego, like Utah kind of weather. Because you guys have some beautiful weather going on today too, right? We do.
1: It's perfect today.
0: Fantastic. So excited about today. Today we got... Tina Manette Anderson, um, who is the vice president of uh of, for compliance over at Mortgage Education and Compliance, um, uh, you know, some, also a published author has been someone actually who's written for Mortgage Women magazine for our other publications too. But uh, today actually, you know, we're we you know, kind of brought you on since you were just on the cover of Mortgage Women magazine. I figured we'd talk about that. You know, there's a couple of other things I want to talk about. I want to see what what our good friends over at the CFPB is up to. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the the um, uh, build a broker program uh, that, you know, you kind of help uh, create. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but before we get started here, so do I understand actually that you sometimes ride your bike to work?
1: Every day that I can. Text- Usually I'd be sitting right back there and then my helmet goes in my cabinet. Yeah.
0: Well, that's just awesome now that's like i'm totally envious of that uh so like and how long is that drive to go from your house uh to mortgage uh, education Alliance?
1: um it's only five miles and it takes me 12 minutes to drive at the beginning of my bike riding season it takes me about 17 minutes to ride my bike but by the end of the season i've hit 14 minutes 30 seconds so just a little bit longer than driving so it's all worth it
0: that's a lot of traffic i'm assuming in the in the morning
1: um, there's a decent amount, but I have a good back road that I typically take because I don't like to breathe in the exhaust.
0: <laughs> That's good. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. So. All right. So let, let's start off, actually, you know, um, to the beginning of your career. Um, obviously, you went to law school so you can specialize in mortgage compliance, right? That is correct. <laughs> so tell us actually, you know, um, and we were talking a little bit before we went live here. Tell us actually, you know, how you got involved in, in, in law and what drew you to, you know, the, the mortgage compliance world.
1: Yeah. And I guess I should say I didn't go to law school to specialize in mortgage compliance. But based on the nature of when I was in law school, which was 2006 to 2009, um, you might notice that that's a key indicator in our housing crisis. So I got out, I joined a security fraud law firm. We were focused on quite a bit of mortgage fraud. It was almost exclusively what we did. So I helped a lot of people who had gotten caught up in straw buyer schemes. And as the work progressed, I realized I did not love it necessarily. So then I tried to get into more of the administrative license um, license defense role. And that was how I eventually made my way over to mortgage educators.
0: So what did you do actually with the, the straw buyers? So the, the 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 victim straw buyers, like like how did how did you help them?
1: Yeah, we tried to always represent the victims. We liked to help people who we felt had been victimized, but occasionally we had to represent the bad guys in the defense, which was a lot harder. But when we were um, part of the problem, was the victims were also partially complicit back then because there were a lot of stated income loans which meant that they could just say how much they were making. So we saw a lot of loan documents that our clients had signed that said, oh, I don't work outside the home. I stay home, but I make 5,000 a month. And then the other spouse would say, he would tell us, yeah, I was making about 3,000 a month, but on his paperwork, it said 15,000 a month so that they could qualify for these loans and buy houses. And um, sometimes they didn't even realize that, what they were signing was wrong, or they would sign documents that had blanks. There wow. were a couple of my clients, thank goodness that read over it, and they would shoot things back to the mortgage loan originator and say, I don't make $5,000 a month, you may put that as zero, because I do not work. And so those ones were a lot easier to defend because they weren't as complicit in the fraud, but the ones who just signed their name away, um, a lot of the time they were doing it, there were billboards up back in the day that said, make money off your credit score and the, the way they can make the money off their credit score was really? by being a straw buyer. So they were taking out these mortgage loans in their name. Hopefully the property was actually being built. In some states uh, it was, and so that we at least had an asset that we could sell and get some restitution. But there were a whole slew of clients that had invested in a state pretty far away from where we are, and nothing was built. When they finally did the investigation to find out what was going on, millions and millions of dollars had been taken out in loans and had been cashed out as though these units had been built. And there was one unit in the middle of a huge field. There was no power. There was no elect, you know, no um, sewage, nothing was connected to the unit and it was supposed to be a 200 unit complex with a huge water park on the inside. People had just taken all of the money the bad actors, and um, put all their assets in their spouse's name. And it was really hard. We worked with the FBI and the secret service on, trying to help our clients. But again, it was really challenging because if they did sign things that were fraudulent, then they were also complicit in it.
0: Uh, so, so like, I mean, what what happens to these straw buyers? I mean, these people actually, they you know, they they see the billboard, make money on your on your your credit score, and they're like, okay, that sounds good, and they 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 participate. They're you know they're um, you know signing blank documents. Um, you know they're they're clearly actually you know, working with people actually who are skilled at this and know exactly what to say to make you feel good. Um, so what like. Yeah. What was the end result that would happen to these straw buyers? Like, I mean, so, like, was there, was there credit destroyed? Was, was so you talked about some restitution, but uh, you know, like, like, um, were, were the straw buyers like kind of like the last to kind of get that restitution? And it's like the, the yeah, they,
1: um, they didn't, they had a really rough time actually. And in the case where there was property, then that was a much better situation, and so we could get the banks at least the money back on their loan. but for our straw buyers, where there was no property, there was one case that I worked on quite a bit. There were 10 co plaintiffs in the case, um, suing the bad actor that had gotten them into the straw buyer scheme. And at the beginning of the case, all 10 of them were married. By the end of the case eight were divorced because of the stress that had been brought on their lives were ruined because there was a chance that they couldn't bankrupt out of those loans because, if they were complicit in the fraud you can't bankrupt out of fraud. they had drained any savings account a lot of them cashed out their retirement just to try and pay attorney's fees and try and get as best as they could out of the loans it was a horrible horrible situation it destroyed lives quite a few
0: oh my goodness that's that's horrible so you're you're right, right. now you
1: see why i didn't love practicing law because i felt like these poor victims had been victimized by the bad actors and then we were telling them, you know, we'll do the best we can for you, which we did of course, but you need to pay our attorney's fees. So, it, you know, that's not cheap ever. <laughs> and nope. it was just like the stress that they went through was awful and it was really hard.
0: So now in the, generally speaking, the bad actors are, are most of them actually, you know, insulating their assets and, and able to, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, show that they've got nothing and hide and r- run away with the money.
1: Yeah, some of them were, and that's why we worked with like the FBI and the Secret Service were involved, just so that we could figure out as best as we could, if we could trace the assets and try and get um, access to them.
0: Wow. that's So obviously, you know, We don't have stated loans anymore there's a a a little more paperwork that's required to actually to get a mortgage these days um but you know what do you think actually you know has changed in the environment that 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 makes it sexy so that we won't see you know situations like that again
1: yeah definitely i think that the ability to repay requirement that was instituted um back in 2014 with the qm rule was one of the best things that could be instituted because that guarantees that underwriting is always looking at the borrower's actual ability to repay. You have to rely on those third-party documents. And that we can have non-QM loans, but we cannot ever have non-ability to repay loans. It applies to everything. So that was one helpful thing.
0: Interesting, interesting. So so what else do you think that was a, a positive thing that came out of, you know, Dodd-Frank and the, the CFPB?
1: Uh, I think a lot of positive things have come out, the CFPB, and um, I'm not the only one. I know that a lot of people are really leaning on the CFPB right now to help us get through all of the craziness that's gone on with the COVID forbearances and the potential um, borrowers, or sorry, not just the borrowers, but the renters who are behind on rent. A lot of what happens in keeping people in their homes is going to rely on the CFPB.
0: Wow, interesting. So the CFPB is going like, to like how are they going to assist uh, like renters? Like what what are they going to do to to help actually these renters that haven't been able to pay, make their payments?
1: Yeah, so they do have a lot of programs, and they actually have their um, an entire website that they've created to give renters ideas of what they can do to either renegotiate with their landlords, to figure out how to pay back rent, to try and you know work out situations so that they can stay in their home. So. I think it's consumerfinance.gov slash housing. But um don't quote me on that, just Google it. Probably would be best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> cool. Very cool. Well that's uh, uh yeah, so I mean, speaking of the CFPB, I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know your article that was in uh, the uh, May June or is currently out there the latest article in uh, Mortgage Women Magazine. Um, talk you talk about the forthcoming tsunami of enforcement. Uh, you know, talk talk a little bit about, about this. what what, can, what exciting things uh, you know uh, that we have actually coming out uh, from the CFPB uh, in terms of enforcement?
1: Um, I mean. The exciting thing for me is that I have a lot of job security right now because people are going to want compliance professionals again. Yes, hallelujah. We were not the most favored people for a while. And we honestly, we were only partially needed for the last few years because it was we I describe it as a pendulum. We go from really strict regulations and people are really worried about compliance all the time. And then we swing to the other side where it's like, oh, we don't have time to worry about compliance, but people aren't really asking that much, so I'm not going to worry about it. Now we've swung kind of back over to what looks like, um, I mean, the CFPB has used terms like aggressive, redouble efforts, bold and let's take bold and swift action, things that we have not been hearing in the <laughs> last four years from the CFPB.
0: No, that's, that's scary. I, I just, you know... Uh... Um, so the the tsunami of enforcement actions uh you know that that's definitely uh you know appropriate so what, what about what what's some kind of a specific things do you think lenders need to worry about or you know watch out for uh to just be extra careful to make sure that they're not going to uh wind up on a on a, the uh, target of the enforcement actions
1: yeah um i think that's a great question and If you had asked me this two months ago, I don't know that my answer would have been the same, but I've done a lot of research into what the CFPB has been saying. I'm constantly reading what the CFPB says, but in the last couple of months, um, they've mentioned a lot more about fair lending. Now hear me out, every spring, they have to do a fair lending report to Congress. This has happened every single year since the CFPB's creation. But if you go back and you read the differences between what they were saying in 2017, 2018, 2019 and what just came out in the 2020 fair lending um, report to Congress, I think you would be shocked at how different, you can just tell there's a totally different tone. Uh, part of that is because Dave Ujio, Ugio, sorry, I think is how he pronounces it, um, is an acting director And so he doesn't have to worry about actually being appointed to keep his seat as acting director of the CFPB. He's just put in as, you know, the interim placement placeholder so that he can keep functioning the CFPB until uh, Rohit Chopra is able to be confirmed, but his language, he's the one who's been using those terms, aggressive action, uh, let's redouble efforts. Let's take bold and swift action when we see things that are problematic. He's specifically mentioned quite a bit about racial injustice. And this was the first year he even went back and said that we need to make reparations for the racial injustice that's happened over the last 400 years. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's the terminology, everything that they're saying is more extreme and he also described it, what we're going through right now with the COVID 19 pandemic, as being a once in a lifetime emergency that we have to be aggressive about making sure that we um, take care of. He mentions, and the CFPB has mentioned quite a bit that they've found there's a huge racial disparity about who is still suffering housing wise because of the COVID 19 pandemic and African-American and Hispanic borrowers are two times as likely to still be under some sort of forbearance. So I think fair lending, if you weren't taking it seriously before, you would really want to run some fair lending statistics and look into things, especially if you're a larger organization. Um, there's a good example of that in the townhouse um, CFPB lawsuit that was filed. I don't know if you read into that at all but they went back and reviewed radio shows that townhouse had been putting on for several years okay. and they pulled out language that townhouse had used that i'm pretty in for i'm pretty certain had townhouses compliance professionals been there they would not have let them say some of those things but it's just like on a podcast on a radio show people say a little bit more and they're a little freer with some of the terms they use and so they They mentioned specific parts of Chicago as being scary. They mentioned, you know, seeing things that um, going through neighborhoods where they drive quickly, they don't make any eye contact. And then not only did they make these statements, but they went back and they looked what was their lending like and how many applications did they take out of like 1,200 applications over a couple year period, only about 30, I think it was 1.5 ish percent were for African-Americans even though African-Americans made up 30% of their demographic. So we're going to start to see them really drilling into fair lending. So if you're running any advertisements, for sure get that looked up. But even if you're in an area where there's a large number of some sort of minorities, you're going to want to look at, are we getting applications from those people? Do we need loan officers who speak these other languages potentially so that we can actually help the demographic that we live
0: in. Interesting. So what, what, like, you know, um, I mean, I think that's great. If you're, you're hiring people that speak the same language, actually culturally, uh, you know, aligned. uh, But, you know, like, what what are some of the big mistakes that you see uh, companies making in terms of, uh, you know, fair lending compliance? Like, what are like the, the big things like, you know, that, you know, most mortgage companies are doing this wrong.
1: The, um, The one thing that I would say that is, and I can tell you why also, but the images people use. So when you go buy your stock images, you type in, I want to see an older um, couple in a house and you grab one that you think looks great. You throw it on and you don't pay attention to, am I making sure that, um, well, first of all, I was thinking of a reverse mortgage, which is why I mentioned older, but if you're just saying couple buying a house, you might get a whole bunch of people that look the same in the same age demographics. So you start, you have to actually put in other terms in order to make sure that your helping people to feel included. When I go, um, we often have people that will send us advertising to review. And I would say 99% of the time when I look at it, I see quite a few um, Caucasian people, just white person, white person, white person, white person. And it's because, and I've done some testing, I think in part, I don't think everyone is necessarily racist trying to find those, but on a lot of the images, um like adobe photo stock for example you put in just generic terms and a lot of the time white people come up so you actually have to think outside the box and think okay i'd like a hispanic person i would like a polynesian person i would like an asian person and you know try and get i would like an older person i'd like younger i'd like a whole mixed group so the images is the number one thing that if someone goes to your website and they're looking around and they only see white people, it's discouraging for people who aren't white because they're going to think it doesn't look like you want to do business with me because literally every person I'm seeing on your website looks the exact same. So that would be the very first thing I would do is just take a step back and think, what do I see when I, your first image of the company, if you're running multiple advertisements, just make it as broad as you can and bring in, you know, a lot of different images. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other regular problems, but that's the number one thing. As soon as people ask me to review an advertisement, I am constantly sending back, hey, there's four people in this and they're all the same age and the same color. Can we get some diversity here?
0: Interesting, interesting. So that's that's like the the big thing, and I, I see it all the time. I mean, like you know, a lot of a lot of cases, actually, you know, the like the the marketing will sometimes. I mean, sometimes there's there's not actually as, as much thought, and sometimes the the marketing will represent uh, the community that they're in or that they that they serve. But you know, it's not it's not the only people that are going to be looking for a mortgage from that from that company. Um, so you just got to be you got to assume that everyone in America is going to come to your site, and we don't want to offend anyone.
1: Right, and. You know, what was interesting is I've actually had two people this week when I talked to them about their advertising and they say, are you kidding me? You want me to add in some, you know, you're t- trying to tell me how I should spend my advertising dollars. And it's not just me though. It I would think that everyone would want to make people feel as included as possible because, a, you know, a good qualified candidate is a good qualified candidate. Yep. And so why not make them feel included starting with that initial look that
0: they get at your company so i mean but but does this really just affect large companies like do you and it doesn't you you uh you know create the build the broker program you know you you know toward actually the country actually you know inspiring mortgage brokers uh you know to kind of uh you know start their mortgage practice and uh you know just take their business to, to the next level um are, are they going after small independent brokers when it when it comes to fair lending or is it just you know like you know they, they just it, it makes more sense to go over a, a company that's doing you know 500 million a month in production
1: What a great question, Andrew. And so many people don't understand that. It's kind of a sliding scale too. So for sure, if you have 100 LOs working under you and you have six branches, then a lot more is expected of you in advertising-wise and having things in different communities, making sure that you're serving people all over versus a small brokerage that maybe has one LO or five LOs and they only have one branch location and they can only possibly help so many people within their little area and they're only running, you know, four advertising pieces a year. Yeah, for sure. It's not going to be the same scrutiny, nor um, have we really seen the CFPB go after those smaller entities, but states will still audit them for sure. And we see a lot of um, states who will ask for information, but um, I haven't seen as many fair lending issues that hit the smaller brokers just because they don't run the massive amounts of advertising that The large companies do that said just because you're small, it doesn't mean that you're protected because like I said, if you have a radio show like that company, I mentioned just a few minutes ago, you're going to be drawing extra spotlight to yourself, especially if you say something like one of the things that, um, that they said on their radio show was let me give a tip to sellers. If you are thinking of selling, you should probably take your Confederate flag down. It's just super strange. Like why would anyone say that? And, when they do say it people who are hearing it are thinking who are they advertising to you know just Uh you don't want to um specifically discriminate and so you need to be super careful in what you say if you're doing more then more is going to be expected of you
0: so i mean and, and listen i mean i i what can companies do to like kind of go the extra mile? Is there like a mindset like, you know, where you, cause I mean, it's, listen, I mean the way this business used to be, it, it you know, I mean, Years ago, when you kind of when you, you got into this business, it was like let's make as much money as we possibly can and just not get in trouble. Like let's just be as profitable as, as we can. You know, we don't want to like you know uh, intentionally hurt borrowers or anything like that. But like that was like the the kind of the mentality from many many moons ago. let's now it's like you know okay we need to be obsessed with the customer experience. Um, we need to be like you know like what do we need to do to make it that not only actually we are compliant but we go a step beyond. So like, you know, um, you know, uh, when did you start to see that change? And, you know, like, like, is, is it, do you still have some of the holdouts from the, the old, actually know, way of thinking?
1: For sure we do. Um, but right with the creation of the CFPB though, they came out and said every company, no matter how big you are, should have a compliance management system in place. Now, Uh, Compliance management system is made up of your compliance program, which includes your policy and procedure manuals, trainings, you should have regular trainings with any employees that work for you, Um, do your own monitoring and corrective actions, and respond to consumer complaints, and you should be doing self audits. So if every company had actually started their compliance management system, like they were asked to, then I think a lot of this would be resolved. But even that said, um, I helped with training for several companies and I realized I I had done training for a couple of years for one company and then I went and I was auditing some of the individuals to see how well they remembered and you can only do so much. I realized that there were a lot of things that I had trained on that the individuals that I was then asking questions about could not remember at all. So it has to stay top of mind. That's why the frequent trainings are requested. That's why we do our continuing education every single year. You know, the more that you can do um, that way, not only is it what has been asked of all mortgage entities, but it also will protect you and your license. So that's the one thing that I could say if you're a business owner, doing your trainings and taking role at the trainings is going to help. So you want to keep all your training material because if one of your LOs off and they do something that is just a complete violation and it's something that you trained them on a couple months earlier and you trained them on the year before you can take that information to the state if they try and go after your license because you were the manager and you can protect your license by showing that you've done those trainings so it really is supposed to be a protection for you but it's just up to the company to implement it and do it and make sure that, you know, what they are teaching is going across and then checking up on it because self audit is part of it. So, you know, you do have to do that self audit, or you can hire someone to do it, but they have to ask questions to make sure that the employees remember.
0: So what goes into a self audit?
1: There's um, quite a bit that could go into it, but a lot of, it again, sliding scale, depending on how large you are, you're always going to want to check to see if um people have completed their education for the year, whether it's those internal trainings, if you outsource those trainings to another company, double check to make sure people have done that. You're going to want to review the complaint logs, make sure senior management should always have oversight on that and it should be reported to them on a quarterly basis. Um, you're also going to want to look through your QC logs. If you are brokering everything and you're not doing your own QC, You can ask lenders that you frequently send things to to run statistics on your loans and report back to you so they can help you with some of this. They can also tell you with that fair lending, potentially becoming a much stronger emphasis than it has been in the last few years, how you're doing compared to other brokerages in your area of the same size, which I think is always super helpful to see.
0: That's uh, that's great. I mean, that, you know, just like it's a scorecard, it's a compliance scorecard about uh, how how good are we doing or how bad are we screwing up here. So it's uh, so that. Um, but do you, do you see actually that, uh, like you know, for for the future um, on the state regulatory side, um, do you see state regulators, you know, going after the small independent uh, companies? I mean, is it you know um, you know because independent mortgage companies are growing. Um, we just yeah, you know, right before actually we got we went live here. We talked about actually, you know, the NMLS count for state regulated state regulated um, MLOS has gone up. I think it was like twenty percent. We said and federal uh, federal licensed uh, mlos have have gone down so it's the the rise of actually the independent uh, you know mortgage companies the 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 mortgage brokers the small to mid-sized mortgage bankers um but like you know like are the states going after these these small entities
1: yeah unfortunately the states are not just going after them but they seem to be getting stricter and stricter based on my eight years of helping people with their audits, their state audits. We, um, some of the things that we've done for eight years, we're finding out states are expecting a level above that now. And not only that, but there are, what, seven states at least that have created their own mini CFPBs. So that's something to be concerned with. If you're in one of those states, you know, you know, maybe you don't have to worry about the big bags bad CFPB out of Washington, but you know, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, California, Maryland, all have their own mini CFPBs now. And they're not the only ones that I'm um, hearing are getting tougher when it comes to state audits. I'm hearing that from states um, as far away as Alaska and Hawaii and um, Oregon, Idaho. I get, there've been quite a few where we have worked with people and we're seeing that stricter Compliance guidelines are coming into place. The states are being stricter. They're not letting people have as much leeway. That said, neither the state nor the CFPB want to put the independent mortgage brokers out of business. So if they see that you're trying, if you are helpful, and I say that with a little trepidation because I don't want you to be too helpful. You don't ever want to give too much away. So if you aren't sure what you should say, then I highly recommend consulting an attorney to review what you. What you're going to reply with but if you work with them and if you try especially if you find something on your own i had a state or sorry a company that realized they were messing up they weren't um giving out a proper disclosure it was one of the state specific ones they made the correction and the change before the state found it so during the state audit when it was asked for documents they said you know they submitted the letter of explanation along with it we realized that this was a mistake it was corrected here these are the safeguards that we put into place to keep it from happening in the future and guess what, they weren't even written up for it because they had already corrected. And we have situations like that that happen all the time where something that might've been not only a write-up but a fine, the state says, great, well, we'll check on it again next year to make sure that you aren't making that error. But we're so glad that you've made that correction. It's not to say that you always get off without any problems if you find an error. If it's a significant enough error, you might still be looking at a fine.
0: Interesting. So so they, they really just want to see the, the spirit of your actions. You know, was it was it done intentionally? Um, and if you w- did make a mistake, did you make the corrective uh, measures to make sure that that never happens again?
1: Right. And I wish that the states sometimes I feel like they forget people are people. And there's some gray in compliance because sometimes they seem to see things much more black and white than the world actually is. But again, that's why letters of explanation with your state audits can be helpful. But again, I do suggest having an attorney in your state review that just to make sure that you're not um, overly divulging anything.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It's uh. Yeah, that's that's. Listen, I, I I believe fully. You you need actually a good compliance team. Uh, you know to, that that you can that you can count on. Um, and you know I have a friend of mine who's actually a big a small broker. Um, and he says he does his own compliance, and it's just a, it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, besides the fact that actually anytime an, an a uh, an audit comes up, uh, he shut down. He shut down right he's business. So, um, yeah. Yeah, this is not uh, not an approach. So, what, when is the time actually you hire actually compliance uh, compliance company? It's the day one, when, right after you uh, incorporate. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, so. I mean, we like to think so, but we also do try and help out those who don't have all the money for it. So by we have some smaller programs where you it is kind of a self help. You have to do a lot more of the work. If you're, it is it is tricky though because, like you said, when you start getting those audits. If you have six loans in the pipeline and all of a sudden an audit comes through and they want everything in less than 10 days, your clients are going to suffer. And you might lose a lot more on those six loans than you did just hiring someone to help you out from the beginning.
0: I agree. And and uh, so I want to ask you about the Build a Broker mode before we do that. Um, so now, you guys actually offer online and in-person training.
1: Yeah, we offer um, online pre-recorded training that people can take anytime and in little increments. And then we also offer online live training oh, and in-person training.
0: Fantastic. When's, when's uh, is in-person training uh, res- resumed for you guys?
1: It has. Yeah, we um, taught in Memphis at the last show.
0: Yeah, uh, actually, we have... Uh, oh then here we go there there it is the uh, link originator connect events we've uh yeah we've just we've just actually had our our, we're back on the road it's uh conference season again which is just great to be out there i'm going to drop a link in the comments so if anyone wants to uh you know uh, learn a little bit more about uh the the originator connect events the uh, events that are part of uh, ambiz and national uh, mortgage professional uh, magazine um But I want to ask you this, uh, like, you know, let's talk about the, uh, you know, the the uh, Build-A-Broker session. This is something that you created. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what was the idea uh, behind the Build-A-Broker program?
1: For sure, Build-A-Broker is so near and dear to me because I did start, um, helped create that whole course, taught it for several years. I did get to go all over the country and meet so many amazing people that were, either looking to open their own brokerages or had just opened their own brokerage. And what we tried to do was outline the pain points that people have felt when they are opening their own brokerage or a lot of people, we get the same complaint all the time. I call the state and I ask them, what do I need? And they say, well, we don't know. Just look into the regulations or find out what your lender asks you but they do know because they're going to ask you for a whole list of things when they go to audit you, but a lot of states aren't helpful when you're setting up from the beginning. So we're trying to give brokers a leg up by finding out the information early on on what you're going to need, figuring out exactly how you can get there, starting off with your bootstrapped mortgage company where it's maybe just you, and then as you grow, being able to find the best professionals to help you with that also it's been a really awesome experience. I've loved being able to meet all the people that we've been able to through the originator connect conferences.
0: So can, can you share a little bit, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, like if there's an MLO that's watching this right now and they're thinking about becoming a mortgage broker, what are, what are the steps that they need to take to get started? And obviously, go to a conference and, and, you know, like learn more about this in, in person, you know, connect with uh, that with, with MEC, uh, you know, and China, but, but, you know, give us like, you know, that like the, the quick bullet list of, of, you know, what needs to be done, you know, to, to set up your, your mortgage brokerage operation.
1: For sure. I was going to say, Andrew, that's a two hour class we teach. Yeah, you but... you
0: got to do that in 15 seconds or less.
1: Quick. <laughs> Make sure that you get, um, just start trying to set things up as best as you can. Make sure that you have Bookkeeping software because you're going to be asked for profit and loss. Make sure you have your policies and procedures in place. You can start out with less if, you're, um, if you need and then build as needed. But then also work closely with account executives as you try to um, get approved through different lenders. Because a lot of the time, they will help you and walk you through things um, quite a bit more than other people have time to help you with. And of course, set up your compliance management system. Make sure you have a way for people to send you complaints. Make sure you have a plan in place for how you're going to train employees if you are planning on getting any. If you're not, then make sure that you know what you need to do as a single person shop. You know, I guess I should have started with number one, set up your entity correctly too. It's worth hiring an attorney. You don't want to do a sole proprietorship. It just doesn't offer you any legal protection. So you probably are going to be looking at an LLC or an S-Corp. But yes, I would start off setting things up right because a little bit of setup at the beginning will save you a lot of heartache um, later on if things are not done correctly.
0: Makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, what, what are the big mistakes that... that... Brokers set up actually that like you see all the time. Uh, besides actually, you know, uh, you know, having all well, white people on their marketing. Uh, but like you know, aside from aside from that, by the way, that can be taken completely out of context. Uh, but uh, just I'm um, I'm wondering actually if you could share with us, you know, like what are the common things that uh, that you see originators or brokers, newly set up brokers, get wrong?
1: Yeah, um, one thing that I feel like they often get wrong is they either try and if they are bringing on employees right away, other LOs to work for them, they try and give them too much. So they say, oh, you're already making 150 basis points. Come work for me and I will give you 225 basis points or something where it's basically eating up all of their profit and they don't realize that they have to run a company off of a very little bit, or they try and offer too little and then they can't get any good help if they start to grow. So really figuring out the sweet spot, knowing kind of, oh, what's industry standard? Okay, I'm a new broker, so I'm going to have to figure out, am I going to either pay more or do more handholding and bring on more green individuals to work with me so that they know, you know, it's more work for me, but that way I'm paying them less and because of that, I'm paying myself more. So it really is kind of a fine balance, but you have to keep your company going Yep. also along with that making sure that you're setting things up for compliance because it just takes one bad loan to shut down your company
0: yep as a as a small independent broker that's uh that's all yeah you get one one buyback and you know that could that could shut you down uh yeah that's, there's no question about it like so so it's basically uh set your entity up correctly uh you know do, do what you hire hire a compliance management company uh to kind of, to kind of help you um decide actually you know, um, when you're setting up uh don't overcompensate, uh, you know, your originators, uh, just because you know you can get actually that producer that's that's doing twenty five uh, loans a month, but you know you've got to actually go a little higher on on the comp. Um, you're putting yourself in in a bad place. And yes, volume is great, uh, but you know if you're not, uh, you know, when all of a sudden that volume slows down and you're still actually you know, paying that that high percentage, it's not uh, it's not a great uh, recipe. So. Fantastic. So, and listen again, you know, you can come to our events, uh, the Build a Broker program, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, that uh, Tina helped uh, uh, craft and create. And this is her baby. Uh, She went around the country going to all of our events, you know, teaching actually mortgage brokers or potential future mortgage brokers. Uh, So, uh, right down there, you'll see actually the the link for all of our events. Um, And we've got them in some pretty exciting places. Of course, we got Vegas, we got New Orleans, uh, uh, New England. New England Mortgage Expo coming up uh next month. It's like less than a month away in in uh in the at the Mohegan Sun. So, uh you know, follow that link uh, right down there. I also dropped it in the comments. Uh so fantastic. So, listen, and thank you so much actually, you know, for for joining us today. Thank you for all that you do uh, to our industry uh you helping actually uh, the 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 participants stay compliant and do what they can do to to grow in in a way that they can feel comfortable and not have to worry about uh, sleeping at night.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. And thank you again for joining us for another Mortgage Leadership Outlook, where we go live every Wednesday around four o'clock. really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Everyone stay safe and uh, we will see you next week.